little ditty about Adam and Eve, two young kids growing up in the garden. So I knew I wasn't going to hit that on time. I'm not really musical, but I tried. I really tried. I, I wanted to say a little ditty about Adam and Eve, two young kids growing up in the garden. Just didn't quite work out, but, you know, y'all forgive me. So once upon a time, there was a young couple, and they had no cares in the world. They had all the food they wanted. They had everything that they could ever need. They had authority over everything that was in this Garden of Eden. They walked along lush-filled paths. They enjoyed all of the animals. As a matter of fact, they got to name some of the animals. How amazing is that? And they had no need to clothe, them, to clothe themselves. It's hard to say sometimes. Um, for they were without shame. Adam and Eve, they were in constant communion with their father, with Father God, their creator. They had everything. You could say it was like a fairy tale. Can you picture it in your mind? But this particular day, it was a beautiful day. The sun was shining brighter than it had ever shone. And Adam and Eve, they were taking their leisurely morning walk like they always did, enjoying the garden and everything that it had to offer them. When they came upon this tree, now it wasn't just any tree. See, this tree was set apart. I pictured this tree to be in the middle of the garden. And it must have been spectacular, kind of like the trees we have out there. They are just spectacular. As they approached this tree, knowing that they were not to eat of its fruit, there was a serpent that had slithered up the tree. And he dangled down some of that fruit, just in hopes that Eve would notice it. And as she turned her head, she started looking at the serpent. And he enticed her. And then he spoke to her and he said, Oh, doesn't this fruit look so pleasing to the eye? It is so juicy. It is no like nothing you have ever tasted before. Well, Eve was mesmerized. She kept looking at this fruit, knowing in her heart that she should just keep walking, that she should not look at it, just keep walking and pass it by. Because this was the tree that God had forbidden them to eat of. But why? Why would God not want them to eat the best fruit? She started rationalizing this in her mind, maybe even justifying that surely she should be able to eat of this fruit as well. I mean, after all, everything else had been given to her. Why couldn't she eat something that was so pleasing? to her eye that was so good for food. She desired it. She desired it, and it looked so satisfying. Surely she would not actually die if she ate of this fruit. I mean, how could something so beautiful be so deadly? The serpent spoke as though he was reading her mind, as though he knew what she was thinking. And he said, you know, you know you want to take a bite of it. For you won't die. I mean, did God really mean you would actually die? 
Why would he keep this from you? Why would he keep something so beautiful and so desirable and so pleasing from you? See, the serpent presented it to even such a way that she didn't think she could refuse. And in that moment, Eve gave in to her flesh. She desired to taste it. She desired to have all the benefits that she thought would come along with eating it. She compromised. She rationalized her decision without even stopping to think of the consequences. All she could think about was pleasing her flesh. So she took it. She ate it. But not only that, Adam chose to take it and eat of it as well. And suddenly, she felt something that she had never felt before. And it wasn't pleasure. It was shame. Shame. And now she realized that she was naked. And she was afraid. Her husband, too. They suddenly felt the need to cover themselves and to hide. Had they been able to enjoy the pleasure of eating this fruit? Not for a moment. Because instantly, instantly they felt regret. They felt remorse. They felt the guilt of their choices. See, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. And we're left with brokenness and the consequences of our choices. And most often, we believe that we're the only ones that we're hurting. We believe our sin doesn't affect anybody else. But it does. There's a ripple effect that happens. And it spills out. It spills out to our family and to those around us. Can you insert yourself into the story this morning? Maybe, maybe it's not forbidden fruit. But maybe you found yourself trapped, trapped by the enemy. Something that started out as innocent, that was supposed to be fun, that was supposed to be pleasing, that was supposed to be desirable. But you have found yourself in a place, in walking down a path that you never thought you would be in. You never expected to be there. As we continue our seven series this morning, we're going to be looking at, well, you might have guessed it, maybe not, but lust. So what exactly is lust? Lust is an uncontrolled or illicit desire or appetite. It's a passionate or overmastering desire or craving. See, we generally associate lust with sex. But it's more than that. It's more like an appetite. Like greed and gluttony, which are also two of the other seven deadly sins that we'll be talking about. But it's an appetite for the forbidden. Sexual lust can drive us to see people as objects. Objects for our own gratification. For our own pleasure. But what it does is it, for, it causes us to forget about God. Especially today, 
in our sex-saturated world, in our culture. We're inundated with it everywhere we turn, everywhere we look, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, you name it. It's all over. See, and Satan knows. Satan knows that we can be tempted in this area. So guess what? We must fight. We must fight. But our fight is not against our flesh alone. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle or our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So you know, for years, we thought that lust was just something that men struggled with, right? But it has become a major problem for women as well. So ladies, we're not off the hook. 1 Peter 5.8 says, To be alert, be of sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and he's looking for someone to devour. But here's the deal. Sexual desire in and of itself is good. God made it. It's when it consumes us, when it takes us, if we're married, when it takes us outside of our marriage, whether it's physically or just in our minds, that it becomes deadly. So let's take a look at a person in the Bible. This person's lust brought him down a road or on a path that he never expected to be, much like Eve. David. Yes, David. David was a man after God's own heart. So that should bring us a little bit of hope this morning, right? Because after all, David is just like you and I. David is a human being. He loved God. He served God with his whole heart. But he also made mistakes. So here's King David. He's a king now. He's a man that loved God, right? That was living the dream. He had everything he wanted. And the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Well, let's pick up his story starting in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 15, and then we'll jump to 26 and 27. It's a long passage. Please stay with me. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with his king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Ooh, this woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Now the cover-up is starting. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. 
So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. Hmm. David has a problem now. So he asked Uriah, haven't you come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely you live, I will do, not, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, we'll stay here one more day. Oh, he's got to conjure up another plan. His first one didn't work. So stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Now, I don't know about you, but as a woman, I'd have been reading that note. But apparently he did not. So in it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him so that he will be struck down and die. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she came, became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. <laughs> Wait a minute. You mean this man who loved God? Who was living the dream? This man who was a man after God's own heart? He lusted? He committed adultery. He lied. He planned a cover-up. He killed. He became an accomplice to murder. All of that, and he also displeased God. Kind of sounds a little similar to Eve and Adam. You can't just pull Eve into this, Adam and Eve. Right? They had everything. They had everything they could ever want. They were living the dream. They loved God. And bam, just like that, lust entered their hearts, and they acted upon it. And sin brought them down a road that they never thought they would be on. And it all starts with compromise. Joyce Myers says it perfectly. She says, compromise is to go a little bit below what you know is right. Just a little bit. See, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes inside, and he resides inside of us. And now we are walking in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, we will not desire to fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, every day, all day long, we are constantly making choices. We're making choices like, 
Am I going to give in to my flesh? Am I going to follow my flesh? Or am I going to follow the Spirit? See, my kids were little. I used to give them choices. And if they did A, B, or C, they'd get a reward. But if they chose X, Y, and Z, there was a consequence. And I think it was my good friend, Joyce Meyer. Well, I believe we would actually be good friends if we knew each other. But anyway, I believe it was her that talked about it this way. She said that flesh is a gambler. The flesh says, I'm going to compromise and I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to hope to get away with it. I'm going to eat that box of chocolates, right? And hope I don't gain weight. How does that work out for us? Or I'm going to spend more money than I make. And then I'm going to pray to God for a miracle, a financial miracle. See, our flesh will always gamble. It will always do the wrong thing and hope to get away with it. But now our spirit, our spirit is an investor. For anyone here with the financial background, you know what it means to invest. Right? When we make an investment, we pay the price up front. We pay it up front. And we don't always know right, when the dividends or the interest might kick in. But we're willing to make that sacrifice up front for the reward that we know we will have later on. So this morning, are you a gambler or are you an investor? See, lust is not a new thing. We just heard it's been around since the beginning of time. So while lust may be a thing of the flesh, we always think it maybe it's a thing of the flesh or it's of the body, but it can also be in our minds. It can be a condition of our mind, a condition of our heart, and that affects our spiritual health and ultimately our relationship with God. So this morning, we're going to talk for a few moments about the P word, pornography. See, pornography used to be hidden away. Right? It was something that people didn't really know about. But it has become one of the biggest businesses on the Internet. Astonishing numbers of both men and women consume it. They consume billions of dollars of it annually. It's disgusting. But the thought that makes, but some thought that making this explicit content for the masses would help curve and take that desire, that pressure valve off, if you will, of sexual uh, desire. And that it would help reduce that craving of lust. It, but exactly the opposite has actually happened. See, pornography is addictive. Pornography is progressive. Feeling that same kind of high requires more and more perversion. And the industry of, of porn, is, it's terrible. It's a terrible one. It's the using and discarding of the human body. And it leaves everybody scarred for life. See, we could say that David's lust for Bathsheba was normal, right? He saw, he was a king, and he saw from his rooftop this beautiful woman. 
unclothed, taking a bath. And his body responded normally. But his subsequent choices to invite her over for dinner, to seduce her, to sleep with her, those choices, while normal, became sinful. And they had lasting consequences. And they were very costly. He was estranged from God for his guilt, his unrelenting guilt, and his shame. We sung about that this morning. The son that was conceived first actually died because of God's judgment. He was betrayed by one of his most loyal, or he betrayed one of his most loyal, trusted soldiers, Uriah. He became a murderer. And his reputation was irreversibly damaged when the people found out about his sin. When I was growing up, my mom always said, before I left the house, be sure your sin will find you out. And though that always rang in my mind. I didn't always listen to it. But nonetheless, she said it every time, right? And so our sin always finds us out. We may think that it is hidden, but eventually it will become uncovered. It, and his own family, David's own family, was fractured for life. That ripple effect happened didn't affect him, but it affected everybody else. Yes, his initial desire may have been normal, but because he acted upon that lust, it became sinful and destructive. Now John, in the New Testament, one of Jesus' disciples, describes an ungodly attitude focused on lust of the flesh like this. It's in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This seems to be a good way to describe Eve's thoughts as well in the garden. When she saw that tree, that the fruit, that it was good for food, right? That it was pleasing to her eye. She acted upon it. And her lust became sin when she ate that forbidden fruit. I'm going to put a spin on lust. We're going to look at Psalm 73, 23 through 28 and I don't think it'll be on the screen. Um, the Living Bible says it like this. But even so, you love me, talking about the Lord. You are holding my right hand. You keep on guiding me all my life with all wisdom and counsel, and afterwards receive me into the glories of heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I desire no one on earth as much as you. My health fails, my spirit droops, yet God remains. He is the strength of my heart, and he is mine forever. But those refusing to worship God will perish, for he destroys those serving other gods. But as for me, I get as close to him as I can, and I have chosen him 
and I will tell everyone about the wonderful ways he rescues me. See, the psalmist Asaph says that God is the being that he desires most. He desires him more than anything else on earth. See, this is the best kind of lust. A desire for God, a craving for God, an appetite for God. In the song we sang earlier today, it said, Love is my redeemer. Love is the power where my freedom is found. That love is referring to God because of his love for us. He sent his son Jesus to be our redeemer and his Holy Spirit to be our power. And that, my friend, is where? That is the place where our freedom is found. And we need to replace the shallow expression of lust with a deep and abiding love for Jesus, a deep desire and a craving to do the will of our Father. You see, the war, it's not won in a single battle, right? War is never won in a single battle. This war between flesh and spirit. See, we must learn to stay away. We are often so desensitized to this sin, right? This sin of lust. We're desensitized to it that we don't even see it creep in. It just creeps in. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee. It says to flee from youthful passions and pursue what? Righteousness, faith, love, peace. And in Romans 13.14 it says... But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans, make no plans to satisfy your fleshly desires so that we can run away. Say no and remove yourself immediately. You may only have a nanosecond to flee or to, to decide to flee. I love in the Bible the Bible about Joseph, there's a story. And he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. But guess what Joseph did? He ran away. He didn't give in to it. And so we must, we must too, we must be ready to run. And let's be honest, this sin doesn't usually sneak up on us. Unless we really want it to. But running away and saying no will do no good without running to something. So we must run to God. Lust is often positioned as something to be on the defense for, right? To defend against. But we must also play offense. We can't win a football game, right? You don't win a football game with your defensive team only. Who scores the points? Bob, who scores the points in football? The offense, right? So we need to be on the offense. And here's how we play offense. We worship God, right? We spend time in his word. We renew our hearts and our minds. So this morning, what's in your mind? What have your eyes seen? What have your ears heard? Reminds me of that song I learned in Sunday school. Many of you might know it too. I'm going to try to sing it out again. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. 
right? Or you've seen those figures, the three monkeys. And what are they doing? They're covering their eyes, their ears, their mouth. So see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. If these things that we are hearing and seeing aren't from God, they are from the enemy. And what does the enemy do? want to do? We read it earlier. He wants to steal. He wants to rob. He wants to destroy us. We will give in to our fleshly desires if we are only looking at those things. So how do I overcome these desires? I'm glad you asked. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 10.5. See, I worked at a Christian school many years ago. And one of the teachers there, she had this poster on her door with this passage on it. It was a great daily reminder. And it says, We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So here's the deal. We have to take captive those thoughts that creep into our minds, right? We have a choice. We don't have to give in to that fleshly desires. We don't have to act upon it. We can take them captive and make them obedient to God's word, what it says in here, right? That's, we have that choice. Or we can choose to act upon our desires and thus find ourselves down this path of destruction. See, just like my kids had those choices, A, B, and C reward, X, Y, and Z consequences, we have them today as well. And the more you know God, the less you will desire sin. But the less you know God, the more you will desire sin. See, shame is a prison as cruel as a grave. And shame is a robber, and he's come to take your name. But love, love is our redeemer, and he's lifting us up from the ground. And love has the power where my freedom song is found. As the prayer team makes their way to the altar, I'm going to close a little bit different today. I'm going to invite also, I'm going to invite you to come forward this morning. So prayer team, deacons, please. Thank you. Maybe, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe you've never invited him to come into your life. Maybe you need the power of the Holy Spirit to help you overcome. Maybe you just need to spend some time renewing your heart, renewing your mind. If you need specific prayer this morning, maybe you have a sickness, maybe your marriage is in trouble, maybe you're struggling with something and you have a specific prayer request, our deacons are here to pray with you this morning. So please, I invite you to come, come forward.